Hello and welcome to The Silver King's War. I'm Michael Seavers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today, we continue in our transition for the Silver King as he moves from active duty and being an Air Corps officer to life as a civilian. And we have another bonus episode, which follows the reading of Rebecca West's article in The New Yorker about the Nuremberg Trials. Forty-one years ago in April of 1982, a writer named Leslie Garris wrote an article about Dame Rebecca West for the New York Times magazine. Leslie Garris, born in 1943, has written on literary subjects for many national magazines and newspapers and may be best known for her New York Times magazine profiles that include Rebecca West, John Falls, and Harold Pinter. Leslie is the granddaughter of Howard Garris, who is the creator of the famed Uncle Wiggly series, along with his wife, Lillian. They were phenomenally productive writers of popular children's series, including The Bobsy Twins and Tom Swift, from the turn of the century to the 1950s. And in a large romantic house in Amherst, Massachusetts, Leslie Garris and her two brothers and their parents and grandparents were living a life that mirrored the idyllic world that the elder Garris's created in their writing. In her book, called The House of Happy Endings, Leslie Garris describes a darker household in what reviewers have called a tender and harrowing account of coming of age in a wildly imaginative, loving, but fatally wounded family. That book was published in September of 2008, 26 years after her New York Times article about Rebecca West. And of her subject in that magazine story, Miss Garris wrote, Rebecca West asks an American businessman at a London dinner party recently, isn't she a writer? A writer, sneers our English host. She's our doyen of letters. But her real claim to fame, he confides, was her affair with H.G. Wells and that poor illegitimate son she bore. Don't mention Wells to her, though, he warns me, or she'll throw you out on your ear. Miss Garris continued, Thus was I primed to meet the aged virago of English intellectuals, generally considered the greatest woman journalist of our time a dame of the British Empire since 1959, whose literary output of novels, histories, criticism, and reportage is staggering in its variety and erudition. She is as conversant with nuclear physics, theories of psychoanalysis, and world politics as she is with the English novel or European history. Her book reviews, which she still writes frequently for the Sunday Telegraph, are among the most literate in England. Self-taught, without a university degree, she is one of her country's most celebrated national treasures. 
Having given hundreds of interviews over the years, she has always refused to discuss her private life, especially her 10-year relationship with H.G. Wells and their son, the writer Anthony West. And she has threatened to sue many who, to her mind, would violate her memories. England's libel and privacy laws are more easily invoked than ours. No doubt, countless biographers await her death, but at 89, and she will be 90 on December 21st, she still stands sentinel at the locked gate of her life. The occasion for my visit to Dame Rebecca is the scheduled publication in the United States this month of two books by her. The Young Rebecca, Writings of Rebecca West, 1911-17, to and a collection of feminist and socialist newspaper articles selected and introduced by Jane Marcus, and 1900, a new essay accompanied by lavish illustrations, which is a historical meditation on the turn of the century. Dame Rebecca lives in London in a modern, somber apartment building with dour-looking security guards, altogether offering an impression of high seriousness tinged with gloom. The impression is reinforced by Dame Rebecca's gray-haired, reed-thin Scottish housekeeper who announces to me as she slowly opens the door that I am seven minutes late. Stern, upright, she leads me into a poorly lighted room crammed with heavy, ornate furniture and Picassos and foulards. Oriental shawls are draped over surfaces in the Victorian fashion. Dame Rebecca waits regally in a massive black chair with lion's heads on its arms. I asked if I may record our interview. Stand at the door, she says to her housekeeper, and stop me if I'm saying anything indiscreet. Pointing a bony finger at me and shouting to her deaf mistress, the fiery Scot yells, That's what she's hoping for, you know. I have an unusual housekeeper, says Dame Rebecca, when we are alone. She's a qualified lawyer, a widow, whose husband was head of the British Presbyterian Congregation in South Africa. Nobody else has housekeepers like this. Imagining this fervent Calvinist lawyer listening avidly outside the door, I begin cautiously asking about 1900. My dear, I must admit to you that when I thought about the year 1900, I thought about Queen Victoria and then imagined my horror in finding that in the last three weeks of the year, Einstein had given his first lecture about relativity and Planck had given his first lecture about quantum mechanics. Then I realized what I'd gotten myself into. She laughs loudly but I thoroughly enjoyed writing it. Dame Rebecca wears a long blue silk dress of riotous pattern, heavy gold bracelets, sapphire rings. Her face, square, jolly, shaken by a tremor when she talks, gives an unsettlingly fierce impression, possibly because inch-thick glasses both magnify and blur her cold brown eyes. Forever the skeptic, Comfortable with paradox, she speaks critically of Einstein's peculiar attitude to Heisenberg's theory of uncertainty, which states that the act of observing the movements of a microscopic particle changes the course of that particle, 
thus rendering accurate observation impossible. Uncertainty was horrible to Einstein, she says with wonder. From one point of view, the universe seems so carefully planned, and yet it's often not for man's convenience. If I'm allowed to speak out on Judgment Day, I'll certainly say he made mistakes. What about the human knee, which is a model of bad construction? Dame Rebecca's career seems a model of eclectic construction. Along with her journalism, she has written some 20 books, including seven full-length novels, a volume of novellas, a study of Henry James in 1916, a biography of St. Augustine in 1933, four collections of essays, among them The Court and the Castle in 1957, which intertwines religion with literature, Black Lamb and Gray Falcon in 1941, a historical epic inspired by a trip to Yugoslavia, The Meaning of Treason in 1947, her account of the British treason trials, and The New Meaning of Treason in 1964, which updated her earlier account, adding the Fuchs spy case and the Profumo scandal. Her writing is characterized by a lofty moral tone and an almost episcopal belief in her own judgments. When she was 19, she lambasted capitalists and patriarchs. In the 1940s, she attacked traitors. In the 1950s, communists and other heretics. She perceives man's nature as divided between a lust for death and suffering, on the one hand, and a redeeming, life-sustaining faith in justice and art, on the other. Interestingly, there is something of a Rebecca West festival occurring today. In addition to her early work being reissued in England, three novels have just been republished in the United States. The Judge in 1922, Harriet Hume in 1920, one of her first English works of fiction influenced by psychoanalysis, and her first novel, The Return of the Soldier in 1918, which has been made into a forthcoming film with Glenda Jackson, Alan Bates, and Julie Christie. In the current movie Reds, Dame Rebecca herself appears commenting wryly on the Russian Revolution. Yet, unlike Virginia Woolf or Doris Lessing, Rebecca West has not enjoyed the acclaim many critics believe she is due. Elizabeth Hardwick muses that perhaps this is because her novels, brilliant as they may be, were not truly innovative. During the 1920s and 30s, when fiction moved from 19th century realism to 20th century experimentation, Dame Rebecca was still writing traditional, slightly overblown Edwardian prose. Most likely, it will be her nonfiction works like Black Lamb and Grey Falcon and The Meaning of Treason that will emerge as her contribution to literature. As an observer of the human condition, writing in an idiosyncratic style combining meticulous scholarship with bold conjecture, she occupies a unique position in her age. Still, it is as a public figure that she will probably be remembered most. The courageous journalist who mocked convention by living with H.G. Wells and bearing his child out of wedlock inspired an entire generation of women who had grown up in the shackles of post-Victorian morality. Your early journalism, I posit, which a new generation will now read in young Rebecca, is militantly feminist. 
How do you view women's lot today? If you want to be a woman in the fullest sense and have a husband and a family or a lover in a family, the problem is slightly different now. Husbands and wives become united against the material difficulties of life, I think. And an extraordinary thing is that the great enemy of feminism is that it's traditional that men don't like housework, and so few women do. Is there a solution? Well, the physicists talk about quarks. If we could have an army of invisible quarks, we could just watch and the sink would suddenly become clean. Wouldn't that be wonderful? While she's rollicking in a fantasy of domesticity, I decide to press forward with a question about her early life with Wells. When they met in 1913, Rebecca West was a handsome, dark Scottish-Irish journalist, born Cicely Fairfield, who had taken the pseudonym Rebecca West from the idealistic, strong-willed heroine of Ibsen's play Rosmerholm. After briefly studying acting, she had, at 19, begun to write for the feminist newspaper The Free Woman, then moved to political writing for The Clarion, a socialist paper. At 20, she was becoming known as much for her intelligence as her reverence. She had already attacked Wells' novel Marriage, calling him the old maid amongst novelists, the reaction towards the flesh of a mind too long absorbed in airships and colloids. Wells, intrigued by her sexual challenge, sent her a note suggesting they meet. At 46, Wells was at the height of his fame, having written The Time Machine, The History of Mr. Polly, Tono Bungay, and other immensely popular books. A notorious philanderer, he was also indissolubly married to his second wife, Jane, and maintained a London apartment and a large country house for Jane and their two children. When he and Rebecca fell in love, he established a third residence for her. At first, it was in London, but just before the birth of Anthony in 1914, he moved her to the country to avoid public disgrace for himself. Jane knew all, but preferred a discreet front. Although Rebecca West was earning some money from her writing, Wells helped support mother and child in one isolated house after another. Always the center of controversy, she was criticized by some feminists of the time for accepting his support. On all fronts, it was a time of social humiliation for a woman who would have preferred being a literary lioness in the drawing rooms of the city. Instead, she labored alone, with Wells visiting her at most two days out of his frantic week. Ultimately, this arrangement fostered much mutual resentment. In 1916, the year Shaw wrote that she could, quote, handle a pen as brilliantly as ever I could, and much more savagely, end quote. She published her first book, Henry James. Two novels followed. In 1923, after several increasingly stormy years, the lovers parted ways. In 1974, Yale University Press published H. G. Wells and Rebecca West by Gordon N. Ray, biographer of Thackeray and president of the Guggenheim Foundation. It was a selection of letters by Wells to his young mistress with a substantial text by Dr. Ray. 
Only a scant few letters from Rebecca West have survived, which Dr. Ray includes. However, the burden of the story rests overwhelmingly on Wells's passionate, hectoring pen. It was the first published account Dame Rebecca had sanctioned. Curiously, neither the Lovett Dixon biography of Wells nor the compendious biography by Norman and Jean Mackenzie deals with this chapter of his life in any detail. Miss Garris continues, In 1930, Rebecca West married the vastly rich Henry Maxwell Andrews, whose Jewish father had left his home in Germany before World War I and, with his brother, founded the Burma Teak Company. As a boy, Henry Andrews lived in Rangoon. Then, at 12, he was sent to boarding school in England. He later went to Oxford University. By the time Rebecca West married him, he was a thoroughly English gentleman with a career in investment banking. The two lived in great style, eventually in a Buckinghamshire mansion. Henry Andrews, recalls Malcolm Mudgeridge, had that look that wealth gives people, very smooth, almost luminous. It's a sort of mysticism of money, with remoteness and calm in huge proportion. But despite Dame Rebecca's new domestic security, she says she still didn't have enough peace to work. My husband was only happy in a large house in the country, and was that difficult. And then I was married in 1930, and Hitler got in in 1933, so nobody had a settled life. I often think that the diminution, the falling off of fiction, is due to that fact. Life wasn't clear to us at all. There'd been an unreasonable number of wars. Auden observed, I say, that all the poetry written during the war didn't prevent one Jew from going to the gas chamber. Do you think it is useful to write? Well, the war wasn't discussed on a useful level. Somehow Auden and Isherwood always talked as if there was something you did to stop a war. But I don't know what there was to stop it. You once said you wished you'd written more fiction. What does fiction do better than journalism, history, or biography? It compares the way music compares to speech. It gives the emotional overtones better. What about the form of nonfiction novel that Mailer and Capote have developed in recent years? Oh, God, I do hate that Norman Mailer's writing so much. It's bunk, nonsense. I thought the executioner's song was so ghastly. If a killer is balmy, it's a certain tragedy, but it's not that tragic. What about In Cold Blood? That's a much better book. I think Capote has some real gifts, which he's largely thrown away. He got all fancy, didn't he? But Norman Mailer doesn't strike me as a writer at all. I think he's just nothing. And I must say that when I met him, I thought he was a terrible bore. He looked like the kind of man who's the son of a family friend. And when he calls, he breaks up a good party. I remember a hostile remark he made to me. He suddenly looked at me and said, You look cruel, like a Hindu. What did you reply? I wasn't interested enough to say anything. In 1937, Dame Rebecca, with her husband, journeyed to Yugoslavia, where she began Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, a 1,000-page study of the Balkan states going back to the Roman Empire. It was an examination of the forces of good and evil and propounded the view that while pacifism might individually be a moral position, it would never do if civilization were to be protected from barbarians. 
Published in 1941 after the fall of France to the Nazis, it was a dark work and marked her emergence as a writer who would follow a more and more conservative line. She had already shed her hatred of capitalists when she married Henry Andrews. At the beginning of your career, you were excited about the formation of the Labor Party as an experiment in equality. As an intellectual, what do you think about the elitism of your educational institutions? Well, socialism hasn't affected education that much. You see, the worst thing about reformism is that you never start with a clean plate. You couldn't possibly destroy the older schools because they provide so much in resources. Winchester, for example, creates a lot of prigs, but it does a lot of good, too. Boys are taught not to be afraid of learning hard subjects. They're intellectually arrogant, which is all to the good. If you're taught you can do anything, then you can learn Russian as easily as you can win steeplechases. In 1900, Dame Rebecca makes the curious statement that men and women don't like each other. I ask her about that. Oh, they certainly don't like each other. They feel very grouchy toward each other on the long haul. What don't they like? Oh, the way they carve the joint, or the way one talks too much or talks too little. But surely, I say, that's simply long-term companionship, and gender is only incidental. Oh, no. People of the same sex living together, particularly men, put up with much more from each other. I found an example of that myself. Do you know what happened here? And slowly, painfully, she rises, takes her cane, refuses my offer of help, and makes her way to the window. Below us is an enclosed little park in a row of splendid Georgian houses of a luxurious cream color, all with balconies and impressive front doors. It is a hidden enclave of the rich. One day, my secretary came to me. She begins in a quavering voice and said, Something very peculiar is happening. I looked down and saw a policeman standing on the patio of the Iranian embassy. That one there. She indicates a house on the end. He was pointing a revolver at the window, and there was a black man with a gun pointing it at the policeman. It was hideous. It was the siege of the embassy that you must have read about. Men were rushing about with guns. Well, the two of us, when we put our heads out of the window and realized it was a shootout, immediately said, Oh, men, that's the sort of remark that justifies the statement that men and women don't like each other. On the mantel, a glass rooster looks down on this heavy woman as she regains her chair. She seems exhausted when she's not speaking, yet the moment she talks, her energy is formidable. Virginia Woolf called Dame Rebecca hard as nails, very distrustful, and no beauty. And although that description may be unkind, she seems, as she sits before me today, above all else, a warrior. But now the battle is waged against blindness, deafness, and a lifetime's accumulation of fatigue. Miss Garris concludes, In 1968, Henry Andrews died, and Dame Rebecca sold her house, traveled to Mexico, then settled in London. Alone, isolated from her son, she has never stopped working. When she walks me to the door, she says, referring to my light jacket, Have you got no more clothes than that? she asks. It's warm outside, I say. She opens the door, then shrinks back. I feel the cold air coming in. Au revoir. As the door shuts, I hear the housekeeper coughing in the background. 
And that is Leslie Garris writing about Dame Rebecca West in April 1982. Dame Rebecca died one year later. And you are listening to The Silver King's War. 